Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Rocky Snyder. Rocky, how are you doing? Corey, I can't wait. This is going to be a great conversation. Looking forward to it, my brother. Yeah, this is this is going to be awesome. And I feel like we're we're almost like continuing a little bit because I was just on your podcast. And so it's like, hey, I'm, I'm talking to Rocky again. This is like a weekly thing almost. I love it. So yeah, yes. I love Swan. Yes, it's a great thing. Like, hey, let's all come on your podcast. You come on mine. And hopefully now everyone knows more about each of our podcasts and better information gets out there. So Rocky, go ahead and give the listeners, you know, who you are, your background, what you've done professionally in your career and uh, what you're doing now. Well, recently I was, I was termed an OG and oh, I'm not nice. also, Congrats. Yeah. I, I thought they meant old guy. And in my That's son, how you know you're an OG. Well, if you don't know OG means you're an OG. Exactly. Yeah. And he said, no, dad, that's a original guy. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I guess I've been, I've been a certified strength conditioning specialist through the NSCA since 1993. And a couple of years prior to that, I began a career as a personal trainer on the central coast of California and currently have a studio here in Santa Cruz area. And, and that's what I've been doing since the early nineties. And and in that time, you know, you follow different paths of understanding and, and knowledge, and they lead you down these different avenues and, and they are intriguing and other times they're dead ends. But most of the time, I, I just keep, I'm the mouse in the maze and I'm hunting down the cheapest. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> now, have you, have you always owned your own studio or were there other times that you did some other things as far as like your training is concerned? Yeah. It started actually in a family-owned small chain of health clubs in this okay. region. And at the time, I was working out every day, practically doing the main kind of like three-day on, one-day off split, and very much into a bodybuilding kind of style, chest, shoulders, tries, and so on. <laughs> and and I loved working out. And it, it mm. didn't happen until my late teen, early 20s that I discovered that that's, I really like doing that. But prior to that, it was all kind of adventure sports. I don't stand very, I, I stand maybe one inch taller than a hobbit. And so when it comes to like basketball, even though I love the sport and I have a good yeah. outside shot, I couldn't really put my body up under the boards with the big guys so much. I'd be banging against their knees, which was kind of a good defensive strategy until they just threw me on the ground. Same with football, <laughs> you know, baseball, yeah. volleyball. It just wasn't for me. So the gym was great. And then yeah. I, I was out here and lo and behold, they were looking for exercise instructors at this health club. And I started there. And within probably six months to a year, there was this concept that came up from LA called personal training. And that's how it all began. And within a few years after being their fitness director and moving up the ranks, I decided, you know, there's, there's other aspects I want to explore. And the best way to do that is to have my own studio. So in 1996, we opened the doors. Here we are 27 years later and still, I'll say going strong, but definitely can just continuing on the journey. And it's been, yeah. it's been remarkable through, awesome. through COVID and 
earthquakes and floods and, and anything that comes California's way, we still survive it. Right. I mean, that's why I stay in Iowa. It's boring. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, other than the tornadoes, you know, of course. But yeah. So now your your formal education, though, is not like exercise science. Is that correct? If I remember right, you you mentioned to me last time you have an English degree. Yes. I spent yes. five years at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, vacillating in my search of what I figured I was going to do for my career. And it was all <laughs> over the place. I mean, from timber harvesting to ballet to fine arts to English. Finally, the advisor said, you know, you're, you're going to need to graduate some point in time. And, and if we look at all the courses, like it looks like a shotgun blast across all the different departments, but you could finish with a literature degree, like English literature. I said, mm-hmm. okay, you, you, you had me at finish. So that's what I did. Right. And, and so I look at it like this, Corey, I spent five years wandering nomadically around a university campus, but I spent the last 30 years exploring human performance, biomechanics, yeah. exercise science outside of yeah. traditional institutions. So yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of letters behind my name. They, they form an alphabet soup of sorts, but none say that I'm a master's or a PhD in this or that. It's just, I've explored these regions and those regions and yeah. kind of culminated to where I am now. Yeah. Well, I actually think that, you know, as much as I, I love traditional education, I'm a product of it. I was in it for six years. And I just, I have always felt that if coaches and people have not gone that way, they just sometimes can see gaps where the traditional route doesn't identify as quickly. They have a very unique perspectives. And I actually really tried to make sure my students got a lot more of those out, outside influences or were maybe, you know, try to uncover the avenues that weren't as much a part of traditional like education and for, through exercise science, because I didn't want them to graduate, kind of go through like five to 10 years and then kind of think like, oh man, like there's all these, all these gaps or holes that I didn't know existed. And now I've got to almost go back and relearn a, a bunch of things or, or kind of like, think about things differently. I think sometimes people who don't go the traditional route, they come to those conclusions a lot earlier and then they blend it with the CSCS and the NSCA CPT. And, and I, I just think it really gives a unique perspective. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. I mean, I love learning and I love the world of academia. And there is the green grass syndrome at times where I feel like, oh man, I would love to be on a college campus <laughs> teaching and so on. However, we're, we are in the trenches of mm-hmm. day-to-day training, conditioning, and whatnot, and we see things first and foremost right there and then that typically take many years to develop in a university or college setting, especially when it comes to research. So the research that's coming out this year, that was something that most likely happened in, in some regards, the, the more kind of mainstream research, it took years in order to one, gain the information, but also to be selected and then be approved. So we're we're seeing almost like a a time delay when it comes to that information. And it's good because in terms of what we do here, it reinforces where we were not too long ago. And now we find ourselves being validated for the things that we're doing 
currently the, the research that's coming out. So yeah. I, I love it. I think the blend of both is, is a very powerful combination. Yeah, I 100% agree with it. Blend of both is a great way to put it. And it's interesting you mentioned the time time course with research, you know, and, and I am in the world of publishing now, and you are a, a book author. It's very much a similar situation where it's like, yes, a book may come out in 2020 or 2023, <clears throat> but it was likely done or the manuscript was likely finished. I mean, now your book process may be different. I'm kind of just, all I nearly know is age, human kinetics. You know, a book for us, like that manuscript is, is in the first draft, the book itself will probably not hit shelves for like another eight months to a year. And yeah. so, yeah, that, the manuscript might have been, have been written during, let's say if it you know, releases in 2023, you're probably writing that manuscript in 2020 and, and it's very much the same thing. So it's, it's, it, it was that process was it similar for you writing your book? Or how book did you I've find ever that? Written. Yeah. Every book I've ever yeah. written, as soon as it goes to print, I want to change it. <laughs> that's, that's essentially it. It's, like, it's oh, unavoidable. Again. It yeah. is. So <laughs> it's just a, it's a snapshot in time with the knowledge and the experience that you have. You put it down into words on paper, it gets printed out. But in that process, you're learning, experiencing more, you're yeah. adapting and changing and adding and taking away. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a timestamp more or yeah. less when that book comes out. So that's the beautiful thing about having second and third editions or, mm -hmm. or just changing the course entirely. Absolutely. So I do want to discuss one of your books, Return to Center, um, and also kind of use that as a segue to your approach to strength training, like traditional strength training for, you know, overall performance, whether that's more on the health and wellness side or sports performance side, just kind of how, you know, your background has painted your view of things. So just go ahead and briefly describe, you know, what return to center means and then how that informs your view of strength training. Sure. Well, the subtitle is strength training to realign the body, recover from pain and achieve optimal performance. And that is more or less uh, the outcome for the methodology we've developed. Return to center refers to bringing the body back into a more balanced, aligned position where everything functions at a more optimal level. And not just muscles and joint action, but actually organic function like digestion, cardiopulmonary, lymphatic. Because if we think about it, there are many world philosophies of health and fitness that take that club hmm. or fundamental purpose in mind. Chiropractic medicine, albeit it's only been around 100, almost 130 years now, but the, they realize that the more we bring the body back into a more aligned position, joint spacing is appropriate, muscular balance is achieved, proper neuromuscular stimulation, but also the functions of the digestive tract and everything else are in their proper place to flow. Yoga, they have a different approach with the same outcome. Can we mm. get your energy centers aligned, right? In the yeah. Eastern world, they may call it chakras. Martial arts in many ways, Tai Chi. In fact, just soft tissue work, massage therapists, they realize that if we create a better balance in the body, 
then a lot of the symptoms of those imbalances are going to be mitigated or at least greatly reduced. The trouble with Western approach to strength and conditioning is that it didn't start out with that being the fundamental hub for for their purpose. Instead, we, we borrowed, as we said before we hit the record button, we, we borrowed from bodybuilding, powerlifting or odd lifting, and Olympic style weightlifting. These are more concerned with the aesthetic hypertrophy and def- definition of a body or gross force production. How much sure. can you lift or how explosive can you be in a vertical manner against the planet, right? It's, it's yeah. not taking into consideration whole, truly integrative, proper, efficient force production through the body, proper alignments. Yes, we're looking for proper positioning when doing the lifts, but actually how to improve a person's posture and take that posture, resting posture, and how does it move through space? So starting off as a personal trainer in the early 90s, the world was a different place 30 years ago. Yeah. We did not have cell phones. Personal computers were just emerging. We had phone books and, and newspapers. <laughs> we didn't have the internet. Mm-hmm. The, the average structural integrity of a person coming in the gym was quite different than it is now. We are deteriorating as a culture due to the lack of purposeful physical activity. Mm-hmm. In fact, the demographics, the population of gym goers is reducing, I mean, those that are, I would say, how would you coin it, like in shape, that they are well-conditioned. The, the population of well-conditioned Americans is much smaller than it was 30 years ago. And the population of deconditioned humans is, is escalating at an enormous accelerated rate. We know that when the body becomes deconditioned, we start to create compensatory patterns, which pull us out of alignment and create wear and tear or inflammation, itises all throughout the body. And we take that body mm. and we bring it to a gym where those exercises are assuming that the body is perfectly symmetrical, well-balanced. There are no dominant sides necessarily that the left and the right are going to work in concert in an equal way. But that's not going to happen. So over the course of my early years of personal training, I started to realize that there was an increase in non-contact injuries and pain symptoms in the clients and the gym members. I mean, golfers, elbow, tennis, elbow, rotator cuff, low back problems, runner's knee, plantar fasciitis, headaches and migraines even. There were so many symptoms that were percolating up to the surface. And these were people that were actually trying to get more active. Yeah. Like these are people you would think shouldn't be experiencing these things because they're trying to take care of themselves. Yeah, exactly. But what we discovered was, well, they're taking these imbalances and they're loading onto them. They're loading movements that are not necessarily ideal with these compensatory patterns are carrying over to their, their loaded patterns. And now the shoulder or thoracic spine that was not ideally moving, it wasn't as mobile as it should be or stable, however you want to think about it, it wasn't behaving 
and it wasn't playing well with the neighbor kids, like the elbow, <laughs> the lower back, right? It wasn't yeah. a happy party. That, that shoulder more or less was divorced from forced production throughout, or it was trying to increase more because somewhere else wasn't. And then we start developing inflammation in an area, and then there's a complaint in that area. And unfortunately, we add in Western medicine and at that time, physical therapy and other modalities that people would go and seek help from, they didn't have that insight into whole body integrative biomechanics. The physical therapists were coming from an acute care perspective sure. and applying that acute care protocol onto chronic issues, and it wasn't working. And the doctors, well, their, their whole kind of thought was, well, let's give you anti-inflammatory, see if that settles things down. And if not, we'll go in there and we'll do some surgery. So anecdotally, I, I just had a woman come in and see me yesterday. She's encountering a lot of lower back pain and pain going down the front of her left thigh. And she struggled to step up onto that left foot climbing stairs. And so we just kind of looked at the timeline of when did these things start to occur and what might have occurred before these symptoms emerged. And what we found was she had fractured her left ankle five years prior to back surgery and actually fractured it twice. And nothing, aside from putting it in a cast and then a boot, nothing was done after that. She, mm. she in fact, broke the toes while wearing the cast on that left foot. And nothing could really be done except she put pins, they had pins inserted and then removed. So that whole left ankle and foot had been greatly abused and then once the, the cast and boot were gone, it was kind of neglected. It wasn't reintroduced into the fold. How do I load into it? So what we found with her posture, because that's a part of what we do, is that she was so far over her right side, but in a way that kind of balanced out her mass left to right, yet still created a lot of compression in her lower back. Over the course of many months or years, that compression began to wear down the discs. So... Sure. There was areas where there was too much compression. So they did a laminectomy to shave and create an opening to reduce the nerves from being compressed and creating pain down the leg. But it still occurred because nothing had changed in terms of yeah. disrupting her compensatory pattern. Nobody could bring her back to a centrated place be with the approach they were taking. So yeah. we saw what was missing. All we did was, okay, can we bring you onto your left foot? So place her with her left leg forward, right leg back, just in a, just shifting her weight, teaching it how to behave, getting the ankle to start to move, win concert with the knee. What was the hip supposed to do? And you start cleaning up these joint mechanics and she walks around after a couple of minutes and everything's different. How's yeah. the back feeling? It's feeling good now. Yeah. How's that pain down your leg? I don't feel it. And it doesn't always happen within a couple of minutes. Sometimes sure. it takes a little bit longer, but that's the approach. The, yeah. the approach is, can we bring the body back into a more centrated place where, where everything is functioning better? And can we then, can we overlap that into a person's strength conditioning program? Because if that person is leaning off to one side, certain muscles are getting shortened and passively shortening and not supporting the mass of their body. Meanwhile, muscles are lengthening out like, like circus wires and that pole is leaning over and those wires are getting more taut and now they're having to support even more while the wires on the opposite side of the pole are just slack 
and they would shorten up if they were like a, a window screen. So, hmm. so can we roll out, can we use foam rolling, myofascial release to target the understimulated shortened tissue? And when you do that, oh, that's one way of bringing the body back into position. So knowing where their structure is will tell us what the length of tissue is. Where is it shortened? Where is it lengthened? We can get compression pain from short tissue or, le- or tension pain from lengthened tissue. And if we can just restore more muscular balance in the body, things are going to feel better. So it also will tell me which joints need more mobility mm. training and what kind of positions can we load the body into that are going to remind the body, the neuromuscular system, how to bring them back into a better place. So now we're using the gym as a means of restorative positioning and function rather than just load the heck out of somebody's body and expect everything to change in a beneficial way. Yeah. Long-winded. Sorry, no, that was a long Mm -hmm. end. That's good. That's good that we lay the foundation of the approach. And something you, you mentioned in the book that I think a lot of you know, people who have been in the field for a long time and again, maybe have more of a traditional background, they feel the tension between <clears throat> is this fact that <clears throat> they might see the things that you're describing where, why are my, you know, why are my clients experiencing these things, these, these little aches and pains, these symptoms, even though I'm doing the things that are supposed to help with them. Like the research shows that strength training helps with back pain or strength training you know, maintains functioning. It has all these benefits, bone mineral density. Why, why do I know the research supports this, but I'm seeing something else in practice? Where's this disconnect? So can you talk about what you've seen as far as like traditional strength and conditioning and trying to, you know, add strength, power, speed through more traditional methods, and then how you would still do that, still accomplish that, based off of a return to center approach? Okay. First of all, I, I'm not going to use the word dysfunction because I don't believe that it actually defines movement in the proper way because dysfunction means something's not functioning, Mm. but you can have a joint move in a, in a less efficient way that it was designed to move. Doesn't make it that it's dysfunctional. It's just the unconscious mind is creating a strategy of mass management and forced production. And it's doing the best it can given where this body has experienced life or how it's experienced life. So the approach that is taken currently, I'll say conventionally, is is that we're loading joint motion that is not to a certain level of optimal movement. It is suboptimal and we're loading it and we're expecting some corrective means to occur and proper joint mechanics or kinematic sequencing to occur. And unfortunately, you just can't, I mean, the the phrase out there like Bray Cook will say, don't load dysfunction. Yeah. You shouldn't load dysfunction, right? So I would say don't load suboptimal joints that are trying to function. See if you can bring it back into a a more efficient manner of moving. The other thing that I think we fall prey to, and we've been doing this a long time, is we're paying attention to muscles compared to paying attention to the joints or the bony structures or the skeleton itself. 
And what I mean by that is, if, let's just take the hips and the pelvis. We've been, we have been blaming muscles surrounding that bony structure and those articulations for a while now. Currently, it's very fashionable to tell someone that they have weak glutes. Sure. In fact, the glute medius, yep. right? Glute medius is the most popular problem in the world right now. Aside from, you know, we just got over COVID, but before that, it was a glute <laughs> from muscular stand, right? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it may have been the, the piriformis or the psoas or and the obdurator. Quadratus lumborum. Yeah. Like, there you go. Yep. There's 57 muscles that somehow cross the pelvis. 57. 45 go down the legs, 12 go up to the upper body. And we're going to pick one muscle out of those 57 and try and get to turn arm. What if we got the pelvis to properly, efficiently, anteriorly tilt and posteriorly tilt? What if we were to able to translate or laterally glide the pelvis to the left and to the right with the least amount of restriction or laterally tilt left and right? So one side is hiking while the other's dropping. And for that matter, what would it be like if the pelvis were to be able to rotate left and right with the least amount of restriction? Well, then all the soft tissue surrounding it, the fascia, the muscles, tendons, and ligaments are going to get an experience, a proper neurological experience on how to lengthen and shorten, how to increase and decrease tension. And before you know it, if we followed how the joints move, then the muscles are going to respond in kind. Currently, we're trying to hunt down one or two muscles and say that that's the problem. When in fact, it's really about how the body is moving as a whole or how this joint is misbehaving and forcing these other joints to make up for it. So did, did I go off on a tangent or did no, I answer your question? We're, we're in process. So this is something, again, I wrestled with when I was a collegiate strength coach of like, Man, you know, again, and you spend enough time in athletic performance, you understand that just because someone's big, strong, and powerful doesn't mean they're a good athlete or doesn't mean that they will be a high performer. You know, <clears throat> I've seen that when it comes to speed, agility, jumping, on-field performance, you name it. It, it just is not a very strong correlation. We, we, we know this with the NFL Combine. The NFL Combine measures physical characteristics the correlation between doing well at the combine and being a successful NFL player is terrible. It doesn't, it doesn't predict it at all. So my thought with this was like, okay, I know as a strength and conditioning professional, my job is to elevate their physical qualities. My job is to protect them from injury as much as I can. Am I doing more harm than good sometimes with some of the methods I am, I'm employing, particularly those that are heavily influenced by the worlds of powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. I, you know, the first book I ever read in training was, was functional training for sports. So I never, I never had a bodybuilding ish approach. No, I, I mean, <clears throat> I might've had like hypertrophy what? style type stuff in there. And especially for a sport like football that may require some of that. So from that standpoint, that was never a part of it. Luckily, I was doing single leg training, unilateral training from always because of that book. But still, like, I still always felt like, man, am I through this like endless pursuit of strength and power and like really only looking at those things and seeing that 
just just because I'm increasing these things, just because somebody has those things, doesn't mean they're going to be the highest performing athlete. And then again, like you, I would see just like things pop up. Like, why do I see athletes always stretching their hip flexors like randomly? Why do I see low backs flaring up? You know, the stuff that I'm like, this shouldn't be happening. Like, I feel like I'm controlling load appropriately. We're not like doing anything crazy. I I think I'm using proper progressions. What's missing here? So my question to continue your answer is, let's, let's say we, we get someone moving their pelvis in an unrestricted fashion and all those planes of motion that you mentioned. How then do I increase physical capacities without screwing? Because that's where I always felt like, even with myself, I know how to manage my issues. I've had, I've had back issues for quite a while, largely due to traditional, tra- well, I shouldn't say I, Largely to me ignoring the ignoring the red flags, which is a whole nother story. But anytime I'd get myself feeling pretty good and go back to my my training, it's just like okay, like I, I'm just going back to where I was at. And um, so that's my question: is like, how do we still make sure we're improving performance and physical qualities, and yeah, just not screwing up what we're trying to achieve whether that's returning the center or whatever it may be yeah great question you know my thought is that we we've got to simplify matters and because we we start being able unable to see the forest through the trees in a way we get <laughs> so entrenched and so critical in many ways that where we need to step back and just look at some general aspects of movement. For instance, there are two ways that the body moves. And what I mean by that is we're either landing on the planet or we're pushing off the planet. So we'll call that pronation, landing on the planet, and blasting off is supination. When we consider humans being around for tens of thousands of years, modern man and maybe we can go even further back in anthropology to hundreds of thousands millions of years of contralateral bipeds Mm -hmm. that we have evolved through or you know five thousand years ago when we were created depending on what your belief system is doesn't matter to me the fact is that we have a certain pattern that is the most efficient means of locomotion and it is the gait cycle and there is a timing to every joint motion in three-dimensional space when the body lands on the ground. And there is the exact opposite joint response reaction when we begin driving off the ground. So if we could understand what every joint's role in these two basic acts of motion are, and we can overlay that into watching somebody move in a gym, it might reveal quite a bit. Now, if we look on the other side of the page of the story here, we might look into the muscles. And what is the basic action of the muscles? Well, we've got concentric contraction, we've got eccentric contraction, and we've got isometric contraction. And all of those should also occur in moments of pronation and supination. So could it be that somebody is more inclined to have a pattern that is more dependent upon concentric contractions 
and not enough eccentric contraction or isometric. Cal Dietz, Trisasic Training, highly recommend his book. He breaks it down quite nicely, shows you how to assess, and then shows you what to do with the knowledge you gained from watching somebody do these specific lifts, moves, or, or sprints. And it, it will pick apart, okay, this person happens to need more isometric strength to improve their speed and power. This person actually needs more eccentric loading to do the same, while this person needs concentric. So now we've got three camps yeah. of athletes, per se, and they're going to focus a little bit more attention on those types of contractions while overlaying it into how are they landing and how are they pushing off. And I don't need just sprinting. We could do the same thing in a lunge, a step up, a squat, or heck, even a deadlift. We could do it with an overhead press or even a forward pulling or pressing action or opposing actions. There is joint relationships, joint coupling relationships that should occur. And how we move is in opposition. The ribs move one way while the pelvis moves another and so on. When, even when we flex the arm, the, the humerus is moving in one direction while the, the radius and ulnar move in the opposite. They're cogwheels. Mm. So where is there, where are there cogwheels that are moving properly? And where are two that are going in the same direction at the same time? Because if, if two bony structures are going together at the same time, same direction, there's not going to be any change in muscular length. And we might want to encourage that. So yeah, we find that occurring through the body. They'll, we'll find when somebody tilts their pelvis forward and their belly button dips down, their tailbone dips up, this person that's standing, their knees go back when in fact they should go forward. So it tells me right there, there's some congestion in the hips and the pelvis in the pelvic region. We might want to explore. Yeah. So understanding how joints move is really, in my perspective, huge. Yeah. When it comes to to coaching and and getting an athlete or client to be where they want to be. Yeah, and, and I think listening to what you're describing, to me, that's functional anatomy. You know, a, a lot of times yes. anatomy taught. Uh, so I, I'm I taught anatomy, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's you take one joint at a time. This is what this joint does. Here are its its actions. Here's the muscles that cause those actions with no regard for how they affect each other. I, I understand you've right. got to do that to a degree. Like these were sophomores, so I could, we, you couldn't just like barrage yeah. them. But unless this is a part of exercise science programs now, I never, I never had it. It wasn't really a part of ours. It's just not how yep. people typically think. And... That's why, you know, I appreciate people who have that lens or you all mention a guy, Mike, Mike T. Nelson, who was early on this podcast, uh, one of the first episodes. And he's, he's talked to me many, many times about his, get this, non-embalmed cadaver labs he's done with Thomas Myers and how, you know, just like what that really looks like with how muscles, their relationships to each other. And it's not just like, Everything's so isolated. You just really get to see how things are integrated and how that actually informs movement and then their functioning. And then what does that mean for training? So that's kind of what I think of when I hear you talk. And so my mind goes to there's there's probably an assessment process here, right? Like, and we don't have time to get into that. And it's it is part of your book. So another plug for the book that, that Rocky does have an assessment in there. Now, again, that may have all changed since the book came out or not. 
or some of it is adapted. Like you said, like you, you write the book and it's out there and uh, you know, there's things you want to adapt or change. So am I right in that though? There would likely ideally be some sort of assessment process or ongoing assessment process yeah. when looking at these things. Certainly there's, there's three ways in I'll, I'll coin it like that three ways into the system. One is just getting a sense of where the person's foot pressure is. And just that alone can guide you into soft tissue targets, mobility drills, and strength drills. But we can also look at a person's resting posture, get a sense of if you're familiar with how to do a posture assessment, then what do you take away from that? And then there is, there is dynamic movements of, say, the ribs, the pelvis, shoulders, and skull to give us an understanding of the general way in which they move in regards to gait. Because the programs we design are just focused around resting posture and how they take that body and move through space, mm. which is the most, yeah, it boils down to just common human movement rather than we don't do strength tests. I mean, there are no RM testing necessarily when it comes to determining what movements or, or mobility yeah. drills or, or some tissue. But back to your point with you teaching anatomy, I think what would be ideal is to have two anatomy classes. The fall semester would be anatomy one, open chain anatomy and, 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 and joint mechanics. And then in the spring, you're going to do closed chain because ultimately therein lies the rub as well. Mm. In the early 1900s, anatomists would take electrodes to a cadaver on a table and they would, they, they would zap them and find out what muscle contracted and what did that do to the joint. Sure. Right. So we came from an open chain centric view of how the body moves. And the bodybuilders went along with that too, which is great. Yeah. And, and we do move in ways that are open chain for sure. Leg swings forward, arm swings forward. But what happens when the foot hits the ground? Everything changes. Now we're into a closed chain anatomy where hip abduction is, is not lifting your leg off the floor and swinging it off to your side. Hip abduction could be that the pelvis on the opposite leg is hiking up while that hip right. is dropping down. Yep. Or you could be translating the hip away from the leg that we're referring to. So looking at the body in regards to closed chain anatomy is very powerful. You begin to understand that internal rotation of the shoulder could come from the rib cage rotating toward it, yeah. as well as the arm actually doing the rotation yeah, over more chain. classical internal rotation. Yep. Yes. And the beautiful thing is almost every joint motion you can think of Every joint motion that you could probably come up with, I can find a point in the gait cycle where that actually occurs. Hmm. There is a time where the spine should extend. There's a time where it should flex. There's a time where it should laterally flex to one side, but rotate away to the other side. Or there's another time where it should laterally flex to one side and rotate to the same side. There are moments, froze, they have fractions of a second that we have to try to achieve these mechanics every time we go for a walk. So what if? This is what got to me is what if we see these postural distortions and they're actually just frozen in one moment in the gait cycle? What if we were to put that person in that position and guide them out of that and teach the body how to actually travel through that fraction of time that they hiccup over? Would we see a change in their overall way in which they move? And the answer most of the time is yes. Yeah. So. That's the crazy part. Yeah. Like you think of any postural distortion and there's a, there's a place and time for it. So it really, it becomes a, a neurological strategy 
then I need to stay in that position to overcome and injure some an injury somewhere else or a surgical procedure or maybe a, some blunt force trauma that occurred earlier in right. life. Right. Well, to to kind of finish out the episode, I do want to spend a little time zeroing in on a specific area, and that would be the foot, because you are discussing the foot in your NS, upcoming NSCA presentation. Is that right? I got that right? Yeah. Yeah. Foot wedges. Yeah, you're right on. Okay. Your, your facial expression said something else. I was like, oh boy, I hope I have that right. So yeah, talking about the foot and... Uh, actually, someone you mentioned earlier, Cal Dietz, is who's, who's who turned me on to the importance of the foot as a strength conditioning coach with some of the heat stuff he's done with the ankle rocker and, and stuff like that. But yeah, like, that was another thing. Like I was never, we never ta- addressed the foot in when I was coming up in strength and conditioning. And then you kind of like think about it and you're like, wow, why not? It's literally the thing that contacts the earth. <laughs> like, <laughs> You hinted at it earlier, like you're either landing on the earth or you're pushing away from the earth. Well, the point that happens is at the foot. So if the, something's going off there, something's wrong. Well, that's going to affect a lot of things. So yeah, as, as much as you can with, with the time we have left, I you know, just briefly talk about what specific aspects of the foot are the most critical or the, most, the things that trainers and coaches should be at least aware of, and then how that feeds into your NSCA presentation. Certainly. Well, just a background in, in foot anatomy, real briefly, you've got 26 bones, but not including the two sesamoids under the pad of the big toe. But you've got 26 bones in the foot and where those bones meet, the space in between, we call it joints. And that space is meant to move in certain ways based on the shape of the bone that surrounds it. So when you add up all the joints in one foot, it comes to 33. We've got 33 joints in one foot compared to one ankle, one knee, one hip. Granted, those are a lot of big joints that sure. are meant for movement, but these little joints are meant to move in a certain time. And when they land on the ground, the, the plantar surface, the undersurface of the foot is meant to spread out and joints open up in that undersurface. And when it propels off the ground, the opposite happens. But also with the foot, it's a tripod. Underneath the foot, there is a tripod or three points of contact that act like a tripod for stability. So if the foot's in its proper position with the proper arch shape and everything, then those three points of contact being the first metatarsal head by the big toe, the fifth metatarsal head by the small toe, and the middle of the heel being the calcaneus, that's your tripod. If my feet have dropped in the medial arch, the pressure is going to be rolling inward and I will lose contact with one of those Mm three points at least, and I'll have to reestablish somewhere else. So now my foot shape has changed, but that has also changed the position of my ankle, which in turn changes my knee position, my hip, my pelvis position, my spine, my skull, and so on. It doesn't have to start from the bottom and work its way up. Sometimes there's concussions, there's visual impairments, there's a whole bunch of things that could start from the top and work their way down and manifest down there as well. It's important, like you say, it's the only part of our body that touches the ground on a regular basis. And that is the that is the first point of a chain reaction that should occur through the body simultaneously. And so when I, I'm going to be talking about pronation mm. at the NSCA National Conference, but it's going to be a full body experience because most people, especially podiatrists, look at pronation mm. as something that occurs below the knee. Sure. But there is a 
sequence. There is a coupling relationship between all the joints in the body. When that foot moves a certain way, so should the ankle, the knee, the hip, and so on up the chain. So if I have a knee issue, symptomatic pain there when I'm stepping, 90 something percent of the time, the problem is not in the location of the knee. The knee is having to adjust to what's happening above and below it. So maybe there's something occurring at the pelvis of the hip. Maybe there's something down at the foot. Now, we use these small foam wedges under the foot at times to help create a different experience, Hmm. to disrupt a pattern. Because that's really, if somebody, if I'm at a cocktail party, somebody asks me what I do for a living, I just say I'm a disruptor. That's that's pure and simple. It's not a personal trainer Hmm. because that evokes a certain kind of like, big muscle guy yelling at somebody that's sweating and barely moving on the floor, right? No, we are here to try to create ideal patterns of movement. And with that, can we load into them, get a stronger athlete or client? But what we have to do is we have to disrupt the pattern that they're coming in with that isn't working as best as it could be. So those wedges will give us a place in which to contact, but it's also an inclined plane or a ramp. So it can speed up joint or bone motion, or if you go up a hill, you slow down. So by placing the wedge in different positions underneath the foot can affect the entire chain. Sure. And not to geek too much out on this, Corey, but let's geek. we will see. Let's do okay, it. Let's really? All right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's break the foot up into three segments. We got the rear foot that's comprised of the calcaneus and the bone that sits on top known as the talus. Yep. The talus is, is kind of head in the headphones it's wearing are called the tibia and the fibula. So when we've got the rear foot and then in front of the talus and calcaneus, we've got the forefoot made up of the five tarsal bones, the cuboid, navicular, three cuneiforms. And then we've got the five metatarsal bones that come down the roof of the foot and meet or end where the toes are about to begin. And then we've got the toes. So we've got the rear foot, the forefoot, and the toes. When we move, those areas should move in opposition with each other. For instance, the the rear foot should roll forward as the arches drop. The forefoot should tilt upward so that the, the backside that contacts the rear foot drops. So they're, one's moving clockwise, the other one's moving counterclockwise, and the toes have to move opposite of the forefoot to stay on the ground. Sure. The same thing occurs with the pelvis, the ribs, and the skull. When the pelvis tilts forward, the ribs must tilt back to maintain balance. But then the skull must tilt forward to maintain balance on a rib cage that's tilting backwards. And the same thing holds true in all three dimensions. And these occur simultaneously connected with how the foot moves. They're matching one another. They are hardwired neurologically to work in concert with one another. So if I have somebody that is struggling to, say, tilt their pelvis anteriorly, I may encourage a wedge behind that person's heel to encourage the heel to roll forward or anteriorly tilt. Neurologically, that stimulates the pelvis to do the same and the skull as well. So now it goes beyond just kind of filling a little space under the foot and giving it something to push against. Now we're actually affecting the neurological component of movement. So the foot is huge. And, and, you know, you've seen foot reflexology charts. Yep. Traditional Chinese medicine, they all have these nerve endings, these points, acupressure, whatever you want to call it. The toes are at the top of the head. And as you work down toward the heel, it goes deeper down the body. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to the bones. Hmm. The bones of the toes could 
more or less match up with the skull. And now we're getting into the fridge. Here we're getting into like, <laughs> oh, he's I, he's obviously in California because they, they legalize <laughs> stuff out there. He's obviously been out there a long time. <laughs> but the proof's in the pudding. Hmm. I can encourage a cleaner neck rotation by wedging the heel, one heel underneath that person's foot when they're standing there. I can encourage cleaner, less restricted shoulder flexion by putting a wedge under the forefoot or anything like that. You've got some problems extending your knee fully. We put a wedge here or there. Okay, now try it. Wow, that just created a lot more movement. So we can clean up people's movements and encourage proper loading with that in combination with other things. Sure. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be introducing the usage of wedges on the first day of the national conference on Wednesday. And then we're going to be looking at pronation as a whole body experience on Friday. Awesome. So now listening to you talk, this is a neurologically driven process. Sometimes where I, I'm never sure what to think about these things because we can affect the nervous system in so many different ways. Well, we know this is a phenomenon with foam, foam rolling. Yeah, foam rolling, it impacts the, the nervous system's input to, to muscle that affects the, the tone of the muscle. So like, I'll never forget watching one of Mike's DVDs. I can't remember which one it was. And he's like, look, I can, I can improve hamstring flexibility just, just by foam rolling. And then they, they do the, there's the standing touch your toes tests. And within 30 seconds, they're, you know, all of the, all of his athletes are more flexible or whatever it may be. You know, you know, Cal, we, we had an episode on reflexive performance reset. Mike, Cal Dietz is obviously a, a big on that. So like we know we can affect movement patterns and like temporarily, quote unquote, clean up movement in a lot of different ways. So I guess in your experience, what makes this approach unique or like does it have does it have a little more staying power meaning like if you can do it via this method it tends to stick or i guess what have you seen from that perspective great question so foam rolling most of the time it's open chain laying down on the ground you get a temporary reprieve and it will be there for a while but it could last longer if you actually put the body into loaded positions and actually activated the whole system. So there is the difference there. Can we get the body to load properly into efficient biomechanics? Because ultimately, the unconscious mind is where movement is regulated, right? The old brain of the cerebellum, the pons, medulla, the MRF, the origin of the central nervous system essentially with the brainstem. That's where it's housed. So it doesn't have the conscious, sentient awareness, the abstract constructs that we can create with our newer brain. So that old brain is very binary. Mm. It's, it's going to be continually receiving, interpreting, and sending out signals based on what it's getting in the very moment. It doesn't have the concept of time. Mm. So we can put the time, just take time out of the equation. If the body is moving in a way that is not as efficient as it could be, that's going to be wasting energy and nutrients that the brain ultimately wants for its own survival. Because ultimately, the primary goal of the brain is survival. And it needs that, it gets that through activation, oxygen, fuel. 
if the brain is finding that it needs to offset or redirect any of that to keep on going, it will do so in the most efficient manner possible. Like you sprain your ankle, you're not suddenly going to walk on your hands. You're just going to shift your body just enough to get away from that issue. Now, what if we were to encourage efficiency into the system that does not create as much expenditure of, of fuel or resources? The brain is going to say, that is what I want. Mm. Let's do more of that. So if we can do it on a fairly repetitive manner, the results are much more long-lasting. And pain symptoms that may have been continuing for 20 years, just look at that as a feedback loop that just keeps on going and going without any interruption. But as soon as it is interrupted with something that's more efficient, the brain goes, let's do that. And then suddenly that 20 years of back pain, it's not there anymore. The person's walking around trying to find it because they've it, it's been a part of them for so long. Yeah. Like you talk to people that have gotten hip replacements and they walk out, they're going, whoa, this is really weird. I was expecting this to occur. And every step I take, there's, there's no pain yeah. anymore. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Hmm. Very. It's, very- it, you've, it, it's really, the sad thing is there's no, it's really hard to quantify oh, yeah. in regards to research. So it's almost like the proof's in the pudding. You have to yes. experience it. Yeah. And anecdotally, I can give you a whole bunch of stories about that for the last 10 years that I've been really diving deep yeah. into gate mechanics. And for the last 25, I've been doing posture alignment. You just see it instantly. Hmm. Somebody comes in, they, they've got some elbow tendonitis, and you realize that shoulder isn't functioning and the opposite hip is not loading. You do those things, check the elbow, it's gone. Oh my God, this has been here for six months. Well, it just has been on a six-month feedback loop. Awesome. Well, if you're like listening to this and it's not been the NSCA conference yet, you've got like a two-hour window on Wednesday where you're where you're talking about the yeah. wedges. So my guess is that's a lot of practical component and you're going to be able to get to feel and try these things for yourself. And my encouragement to you is like, don't just sit and watch. Get up, get the wedges on, get, get, try what Rocky is going to do. Like, that's the best way to learn. And then what you can do at 5 p.m. later that day is come to my talk and learn and then sit and learn about supplements. So, yeah, very different. It's all it's all amazing. And uh, Rocky, just thank you so much for your time today. If people want to follow you, learn more, where can they go? Well, this has been a treat. Truly, Corey, I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for your talk. And And I hope that you... You're in there with the wedges with me because it will be almost two hours of hands-on experience. They can go to online, Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder. I'm on Facebook because I'm older than 40. So uh, LinkedIn, Rocky Snyder, CSCS. I've got a YouTube channel by the same name. And my website humbly is RockySnyder.com. So you can just put a search in for my name and everything will pop up. Right. And then, of course, check out Rocky's books. Check out Rocky's podcast, Zelos Podcast. Uh, he's been doing it for a long time. Got a bunch of great episodes. So definitely go and check that out. He's very active in the NSCA Personal Trainers Facebook group. So you can interact with Rocky there too. Again, Rocky, thank you so much. And looking forward to seeing you at the NSCA conference. And how's it going? <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at 
Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.